a lot of you know that I grew up in uh, Chicago, and um, in right after uh, really basically the Second World War ended, and during uh, World War II, there was a huge migration from the South to the North. Uh, blacks were brought up by literally by trainloads in boxcars to work in the meatpacking plants in Chicago to help feed the troops abroad and feed the rest of the nation. And that's why there, there's so many blacks now, when you ask them, at least in my parents' generation, where you're from, they're always from someplace in the South. Uh, only my generation is from the North, but my parents' generation is from the South. And I can remember being in the fourth grade at uh, an elementary school, and some of the students in my class were 13 and 14 years old because they had come up with their families from the rural South. And we used to tease these uh, people for being so backward. They weren't sophisticated, and we would make jokes about them. They simply weren't as worldly as the other fourth graders were. <laughs> and we used to say, you can take the man out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the man. Have you heard that phrase? And the last thing you wanted to be tagged with was being country. That is, being unsophisticated, not being uh, worldly. And In fact, that sense of not being affected or being overly affected by worldliness is a problem for people who are in Christ and an issue for people who are not in Christ. So, for example, if one is a brand new believer or just exploring the issue of whether to uh, give his or her life to Christ, one of the things that you're worried about is, what is that going to look like? How am I going to be influenced? Am I? Are we all going to be like Sarah Palin or some other negative connotation we have of being a Christian. On the other hand, if, if we're Christians, um, we're worried about if we associate with non-Christians, is that going to run off on us, rub off on us, and we're going to become oof, worldly. And, and the text that we look at is sort of a classic text for me. I had never seen this before on the consequences of worldliness, and it's true whether a person is a believer or not a believer. So with that, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, the title is Worldliness, Israel Asks for a King. And as we go through, um, I'm going to do something a little unusual because if you look on page 4, uh, I've actually just given the outline for my uh, sermon. Worldliness causes us to look to men rather than God. Worldliness causes us to reject God. And worldliness blinds us to what we need. As I go through uh, the text, think of those subparts as I read and you follow along with me. Uh, and my reading is, oh, you have it up behind me. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. 
So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and your maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. Now, in our culture, worldliness has a positive connotation uh, in Western culture. It, It means basically to be sophisticated. So let me give you another kind of working definition, and that is that it is contrasted with biblical spirituality. It's looking at the world through a cultural grid not illumined by the word of God or by his spirit. It represents a view of life directly at odds with scripture. And so let's look first at this first division. And and mind you, worldliness is a problem within the church. I'm not talking about the church and people outside the church. I'm talking about a view of life unillumined by the word of God and by his spirit. That is a problem for people in the church, and it is a problem for people outside the church. This is not a us versus them uh, approach. It is a problem with which we all struggle, given man's biggest problem, which is our constant tendency to drift away from God. So the theme of the messages we've heard so far from First Samuel's First Samuel is that we need to repent, and we repent by turning to God and obeying Him. 
Uh, now here we see some of the warnings about turning to men and not to God. And in light of Israel's history, it is absolutely amazing that the Israelites would want someone other than God to rule them. Now, just in chronologically, we have gone from a period when Joshua has died through a period in the Bible described as the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And now we're coming up upon the age of the kings. And this period of the judges is a dark history in Israel when they did the most abominable things to one another because they refused to let God rule over them. They would not be subject to his laws and his rules. So in light of how they have dealt with one another, in light of how they have treated one another, it is amazing that they're, what they want is to be like all the other nations. And remember, all the other nations who originally occupied the land of Canaan were expelled by Canaan because of their worldliness. And now they're saying, we want to be just like the people that God expelled from this land. Now, this is not a picture of Jewish people. This is a picture of us. This is just a little view of one people to understand what we all are like. This is not saying the Jews are one way and we're different. This is saying this is how Bill McCurran is. So what's the tendency, what underlies this tendency to look to men rather than God? Let me submit to you it's three things. It's not my responsibility. It's not my fault. Let someone else do it. All right? Uh, the let someone else do it is apparent in uh, and their search for a champion. He said, we want a king who will lead us and guide us, who will fight for us and go before us in battle. They're looking for a champion. And if you remember Doug's sermon from last week, which is actually in time ahead of where we are now. So we we're going back to the future or something like that. Okay, so he took you to a later point in time, and I'm going back in history before the time about which Doug preached. When he preached, Saul was appointed king, and as he said, he did not live up to his own potential. But Saul has not yet been appointed king. There has not yet been a king in Israel. They want, for the first time, a king. And Saul comes along later, and he rescues uh, the men of Jabesh from the Ammonites. And that's how he, he was their champion. He led to battle. And that was the one that uh, God selected to be their king. So if we look at verses four to five, there's this interesting phrase that says, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now, what is striking about this, not a request, but a demand, is one, it's made by the elders. These are precisely the men who should know better. 
Don't think that this request came from the illiterate rabble, the unschooled in the words of God. This, this demand came from the elders. Now, God had already said years earlier, that he, God, was making Israel a peculiar treasure, a peculiar people unto himself. And he said, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now we see that they don't want that status. They don't want the responsibility. And you ask, okay, if they are upset that Samuel's sons are not godly leaders, and they are elders, it forces the question, or at least begs the question, why aren't there other godly leaders? I mean, here are the elders. Why aren't they stepping forward? Where are the other godly leaders? You know this phrase that's often criticized, it takes a community to raise a child, but it also takes a community to ruin a child. Um, and so here we've got this community of elders and there is nothing in the text that suggests that by exhortation, word or example, that they are showing the people how to live for God. And it is apparent that they don't even know how to do it by their demand. So when the elders come forward, there are other options open to them. The, the priesthood was given to the tribe of Levi and the sons of Levi, the high priest from the line of Aaron. So there are thousands of Levites. There are hundreds of descendants of Aaron from which to choose. And they're numbered among these elders. Why aren't they living such a life that though... Samuel's sons fail. They can step forward for God. Why aren't they gathering to pray? Why aren't they gathering to repent and offer sacrifices to the Lord for this lack of godliness in the leadership or in the country? Why do they gather for a worldly response to a spiritual problem? Now, at this point, uh, the story to me illustrates a uniqueness about Christianity. Um, the individual is responsible to the community, and the community is responsible to the individual. Other religions go in one of two directions. You look inward but not outward, or you look outward but not inward. So let me give you some examples of looking inward, but not outward. The, the emphasis is on uh, my performance, on self-improvement, on finding or purifying or bettering yourself, or being separated from the world so you won't be tainted uh, with the world. Uh, it's an, the example of it will be a phrase like, you know, I like you, but I don't like them. When I grew up in, in uh, Chicago and when I first went to uh, college, uh, I would meet for the first time a lot of white students from very different areas. And, and invariably, someone would come up to me and say, you're not like them. 
I can relate to you, but I can't relate to them. The, the them would be the other black students on campus. And man, it always turned me off. I wanted nothing to do with that person because I am really them. You understand? I'm really them. And so there's no way that he can love me or appreciate me when he doesn't like them. Well, the other example is looking outward, but not inward. And we see that manifested with an emphasis on social justice. The emphasis is on rules to make other people conform. But there's little or no recognition of one's own sin and depravity. Let me give you a small example. The the celebrity who sings before thousands of thousands of people and says, I love you. But by golly, don't try to get in their dressing room or, or to call them up and say, could could we go out to lunch based on, you know, you love me. I'd like to share some of my issues with you because they got bodyguards all around them to make sure that the people they love don't get anywhere near them. But Christianity requires us to look inward and outward. We have an example in this um, in Jesus Christ. He would rise early in the morning in order to pray and to commune with the Father, even before the sun rose. And then once he communed with the Father, and he never ceased communing with the Father, he spent the rest of his day waiting unto unwashed humanity to heal their sicknesses, to bring them to repentance, to give them the word of God. And his disciples were always saying, let's get away from them. Don't let that woman touch you. Uh, Loneliness and alienation are problems in any society. And let's look at this from sort of a just our society point of view. In Christianity, this inward and outward thing deals with the issue of alienation. We come to Christ, and the first thing that happens when we come to Christ is that Christ moves us into community. Now, that's called the church. But he moves us into community. Why? Because in community, we take these these general principles, these truths, and we learn how to actually apply them to our lives. You, you get to rub up against somebody else who's struggling with pornography or who has come out of some addiction like alcohol or drugs or uh, is having marital problems or has lost a job. And you've heard this thing about trusting in God. That's a nice truth. But how does that look in my life and how do I work that out? God thrusts us in the community where other people have these issues and some of them are ahead of us on that issue. Some of them are approaching the station, but the train hasn't arrived yet. But you're right at the station of I'm in trouble and I need help. But there are people who have stopped at that station who can tell you from their experience what it means to trust in God and and what it looks like. In our church, we call them community groups. And this is why it's so important for us to be involved in community groups because we take a lot of that inward stuff and other people in our community group are looking at that 
outward stuff on how they can minister to you. And, and you're taking that inward stuff and seeing that you need their input to help you learn how to walk with Christ. It would be interesting one day if you ever have some extra time and you have a concordance to look up the phrase one another and see how many times the phrase one another appears in the New Testament. Love one another, forgive one another, comfort one another, edify one another. The Christian life is played out in community. We are required to be able to stand alone but we are also required to participate in community. Um, so uh, here's a principle for us. Worldliness causes us to turn to men rather than to God. We, we, we have problems and we, and like the elders, we do not come to pray to God for wisdom and guidance. We say we need a leader or we need a guru when what we need is God. Let me ask where you turn when you have problems. Uh, how often in your thoughts do you turn to God during the day? And when your thoughts turn to God, are they accompanied by thoughts in relation to God of fear and suspicion? Or are your thoughts of God ones of wonder and awe and gratitude? Well, our second division is that worldliness causes us to reject God. Jesus, uh, and again, worldliness, it's this view of life unillumined by the word of God and by his spirit. So that the deep core values of our life are who we are and what our purpose is and what relationships, how we deal with relationships, how we deal with problems are not influenced by God and his word, but are influenced by something else. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment that uh, that we have. And if you remember last, not last year, but you know how we go through cycles. We go a little bit in the New Testament, then a quarter in the Old Testament, and then we go back. Well, last time we were looking at the parables. And you may remember the parable of the ten minas, where one of the, the king's son was sent away to a distant country. And he had overseers to uh, stand in his presence until his return. And upon his return, it says in Luke 19, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And that is exactly what Israel is doing in this encounter with Samuel. We don't want God to be our king. Um, Perhaps you think it is maybe too severe a statement to say that the Israelites rejected God and instead say what they wanted was to substitute someone else in God's place. 
And if we take that idea of saying, no, they're not really rejecting God. They just, they just find someone else more attractive than or preferable to God. It's not really rejection. Even though I disagree with that sophistry, I want to go there. Because we see in the New Testament an example of what substitution is when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate for his sixth trial. And his plan, Pilate's plan was to release the thief Barabbas. And the people at that time said, no, I mean, um, to release Jesus instead of Barabbas. But the people said, no, we want a substitute. We don't want you to release Jesus. Release the murdering thief Barabbas instead. So if you talk about substitution, boy, there's an example. We see this idea of substitution in the secular realm all the time. Um, and, the, and the model is we want, we should want God, but we want someone or something other than God. So, for example, we want sex. We don't want marriage in which sex is just an analog that points to Christ and his relation to the church. We want material wealth. But we don't want spiritual wealth. We want friendship, but we don't want fellowship. We want a good reputation, but we don't want good character. I remember when I first started out as a young lawyer, I was required to have a mentor. And my mentor was a wonderful salt of the earth guy. I loved him then and I love him now. And he sat down with me and he told me some critical advice that a young lawyer needed to know. And this is what he told me, and it's a quote. You can take your secretary to bed, but you cannot take her to lunch. I, I, I was sure I hadn't heard him correctly, but he repeated it. Because it was more important to have a good reputation than to have good character. I quickly told Dana that story so I wouldn't be I wouldn't be I wouldn't be tempted toward the good reputation side. Um, but it, this also this problem also exists in the sec, in the religious realm. We we have church attendance, but we have not received Christ as Savior. We, we rely on good works and on being a better person. But we do not rely on Christ's finished work. We read books about the Bible. But we don't read the Bible. And God warns us as he warns the um, Israelites here of the consequences of rejecting him. And the rejection of God is also evidence, if you remember the passage, God told um, Samuel, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. See, they are rejecting God, but they are also rejecting people who are so identify with God that it serves as a godly standard that they can't accept. So it is true 
that they are rejecting God. But because Samuel is so identified with God by his lifestyle, they reject Samuel also. They don't want anything to do with Samuel. So in looking at the world from this cultural grid of what everybody else is doing, we want to be like everyone else. When God has said, I have not designed you to be like everyone else. I've designed you to be a peculiar people. You are supposed to stand out. You are a city on a hill. You are salt. You're going to be different. It is a blessing to be different. And they have said, I don't want to be different. I want to be like everyone else, and I want to blend with the crowd. That's a classic example of worldliness. And if God comes along and says, I want to remind you, Bill, that you are intended to be different. And I said to him, God, I don't want to be different. And so I'm going to reject God. And if, 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 if a friend comes up to me and says, you know, Bill, the, the way you're acting or speaking is just like everybody else. I'm offended because that's my goal. I don't want you to remind me that God has made me a peculiar treasure. I, I want to, to blend in. I want to be one of the guys. And if you're a young Christian, like when I was a young Christian, but I, I, there was some oddness in, in, in being different. And uh, uh, people would say, did you see Playboy magazine? I'd thrown out my, all my Playboy magazines. But I didn't say that. Uh, and they would make their jo jokes about wives. I wouldn't do that. But I, I, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't come out and say anything about it. Because even though I was different, I still kind of wanted to blend in. I didn't want to appear like one of those oddballs who, in my view, an oddball, carry signs around that says, you know, the world is going to end on January 6th. I didn't want to be seen that way. So here's another aspect of worldliness. It binds us to what we need. One of my wife's best gifts to me, and I think, I'm not quite sure if she's glad that she gave me this gift or not, is an iPod. And I, I've got 2,300 songs on there, and it's still growing. And, and one of the songs is by Coldplay, and it's called Fix You. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, so... Some of you are about to go like that. And there's this line, when you try your best, but you don't succeed. When you get what you want, but not what you, leave, what, not what you need. When you feel so tired, but you can't sleep. Stuck in reverse. Um, when it comes to needs, I don't know if you are where I have been. I do not mind trusting God to supply my needs. My problem is that I don't want God to define my needs. You, I don't know if you've been. I want to I be able to go to God and say, I need A, B, and C. I don't want to go to God. And then I say to God, in all faith and humility, now give me what I want. I'm going to lay down on the floor. And when I wake up, lay those things out. Um, I can remember once praying to God about something regarding my wife. I don't remember what it was. 
<laughs> I know I'm not relating to anybody else, but take this isolated story. I am literally fussing to God about Dana about something. And it's like God is just standing right in front of me going, mm-hmm. And I'm, he, and I'm expecting some different response. And God continually tells me, what about you? And I said, well, let's talk about me later. <laughs> Here's this issue with it. Mm-hmm. What about you? And God has that very irritating habit of doing that. When I take my problems to him, he tells me, Bill, you think your problem is X. That's not your problem. Your problem is selfishness or your desire to be liked by others more than to be loved by me or laziness or and I don't want God to talk to me that way. I just I'm willing to take any pill that he gives me to make me different. But the process of engaging with God so that he transforms me the way he knows I need to be transformed is downright uncomfortable. Um, so part of being a Christian is yielding to the fact that God alone has the right to define what I need and that I surrender that to God. And I'm constantly turning to God to help me understand what I need from your point of view. And let me tell you, it's a constant challenge. It will be a challenge with me until the day I die. Although I tell you, I am thankful for this. That God has not answered all my prayers. You know that Garth Brooks song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayer? I can remember, just as clear as day, being in Los Angeles in 1969 and seeing this girl that I was attracted to. And if she had given me the slightest opening, I would have remained in L.A. and courted her. But she just flatly rejected me. She wasn't even polite about it. You understand? I mean, it was a closed door. And I was sad about that. It came down to San Diego the next day. And that day, met Dana. <laughs> you see, God knew what I needed. I didn't. Years later, after we had been married for at least 10 years, I saw that same woman walking in San Diego. And I had the strongest desire to pull my car over and thank her with all my heart for rejecting me. And but then something told me, don't do that. And when I went home to Dana and I told her the story, she said, well, I don't think that would have been a wise thing for you to. But I mean, I, I really wanted to say, you don't remember me. I'm so glad you rejected me. Man, I got a great wife now. Yo. So here's um, a danger. God will give us what we ask for. When God says no, his no's are always unambiguous. But sometimes when God says yes, his yes is ambiguous, as in this story. He said yes. Terrible result for Israel. He said Give them what they want. There's this wonderful passage in Psalm 106 that talks about uh, this tendency of God's people to complain about what he has provided. 
and to make their needs clamant. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. He gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. I mean, the example is the guy who really upset with his wife and bored with sex and he has an affair and another one, another one. And you know what? He finds each one increasingly unsatisfying. Or the guy who says, you know, I need a little spark in my life. I'm going to take a drink. And he takes another drink and another drink. And he has to take more because it takes more to get him to the same high place. And that's what addiction is, isn't it? The deeper you get in the, into addiction, the more you need of that addicting thing to take you to the same level of high that maybe one marijuana stick would take. Now it takes five. He gave them their request, but brought leanness unto their souls. He denied them the ability to enjoy, to appreciate, to value. When we look at Israel's history, it is painfully short of godly kings. Indeed, after uh, Saul came David and after David and Solomon and after Solomon, the nation split in in two. The the 10 of the 12 tribes went of called the northern tribes became Israel and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were called Judah. When Israel separated that way, the northern kingdom called Israel never had a godly king. Every single king they had brought misery to the people. In fact, there is this phrase, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you ever want to do another word study, just do that quote on some of those Bible search programs. Did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That phrase appears 50 times in the Old Testament. The southern kingdom, Judah, was a little bit better. I mean, it did have David, it had Hezekiah, but they really had the same problem. They had some godly kings, but they had more ungodly kings than godly kings. But God's grace enters our life in this way. He arranges our circumstances to teach us. That until God is all we have, we will never understand that God is all we need. And those circumstances hurt. For some of it is called business failure. For some it's called health problems. For others it's the struggles in relationships. Or maybe it's the loss of a job or loss of a business. And we struggle. It's so painful to go through those things. But in that process, God is trying to teach us that he is all we need. And so he brings us to the point that he is all we have. And then we find that God is indeed sufficient. Is it perhaps one or uh, uh, more people here, you're, you're angry with God because he hasn't answered a particular prayer? 
or maybe you express the anger. You're not outright angry, but you feel aloof and alienated from God because there is a need that you have taken before the throne repeatedly and God has not met the need. And you are disappointed that he has not done so. And in that disappointment, you, you say, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to take my other issues to God because he has filled me in this area. When I look at this passage, it makes me, it causes me to see five things about Jesus that enable us to under, overcome this this worldliness and begin to see things from God's point of view. One is that no Hebrew king ever measured up to what the people wanted or expected. Even King David, who was a man after God's own heart, uh, murdered, had, had sex with one of uh, his, the wife of one of his most faithful generals. And then to cover it up, arrange to have the man murdered. Solomon, the Bible says this about Solomon. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he was the wisest man in the earth at the time, said the Bible. There is in New York, the RCA building. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but in the lobby, there's this incredible sculpture of um, Atlas. And he's got the world uh, on his shoulders. And he's straining. You can see in the sculpture the strain of the effort of carrying the world. And right across the street is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And when you go inside, there is a, a statue of Jesus as a young boy, and he's got the world in one hand, effortlessly holding it. And see, that's the picture. There is no person, no matter how good, who can supply the need that only God can supply. Second thing I've learned. The Hebrew kings had a tit for tat. I mean... Uh, the king would get their sons, their daughters, their lands, their taxes, prestige and honor, and they would get his leadership and protection. You, know, you do for me, I'll do for you. But what do we offer our champion? What's the tit for tat for us in relationship to Christ? What do we give him? We give him our sin, our depravity, our alienation from the very God who wants to save us. We really have nothing other than to offer than that. Third, the only true champion is Jesus. Never passed the buck, took all the responsibility on his own shoulders, and he did that in the most unanticipated way. When David was confronted with Goliath, or when David confronted Goliath, and though he was weak, he took tools of war with him in his sling and killed Goliath. When Saul went to rescue the people of Jabesh from the Ammonites, 
And the people were so excited at David's victory and Saul's victory. Now just imagine if Saul walks up to the Ammonites with all his army, lays down on the ground and puts his weapon aside and says, kill me. Or if David had walked out and instead of picking up a stone and a sling, he just lay down and said to Goliath, kill me. Nobody would. What kind of champion does that? And that is exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. Here he is, the king of the universe with unlimited power, puts himself in the hands of mean men and becomes utterly helpless and a prey for our benefit. So that he could take all the punishment that you and I deserve. Maybe part of the reason they rejected God as king is that no one could anticipate that God would die on a cross and that through weakness he would overcome the world on our behalf. Fourth, I look at the comparison between all the kings that came uh, with Saul and later, and I look at Jesus. Samuel warned, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. But Jesus is the only true servant king. He said he came not to minister, not to be ministered to, but to minister. Samuel said of the kings, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. And Jesus says, look, I am going to die on the cross. And because I own the entire universe, I will be resurrected on the third day. And everything that I own in the universe, I share completely with you. You will be joint heirs with me of everything I own. And I own everything. Samuel says, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. And here Jesus in our own human form, though perfected, right now as we sit here, is making intercession for us before the Father. And lastly, in what other religion does the very God we reject take the punishment for rejecting him and then accepts the rejection of his father so that we can be accepted by that father? No other religion does that. It's as though we, Jesus is saying to us, I know you have rejected me. But I love you anyway, and I am going to give you in myself, in myself, everything you will ever need and everything you will ever long for. Peace, fulfillment, self-knowledge, contentment, security, a love that passes all understanding, you name it. And I will give it to you. And I'm going to give it to you in myself for eternity, despite the fact that you do not deserve it and that you have rejected me. I give it to you anyway.
Let's pray. Father, we uh, are so grateful that you are not a God of second chances. Because if you were, we would all be utterly lost and destroyed. But you come to us continually giving. Despite our tendency to look to men rather than to you, to reject you in difficult circumstances and to you ignore you when circumstances are good. We look to champions other than to Jesus, but you have today given us great cause for celebration. For without any merit on our part, you have made us your adopted children and have promised through Jesus Christ everything, amen. 